Welcome to another episode of the Middle West Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Thaqib Musa, and uh, what I'm supposed to say is welcome to another fresh concoction of extremely oversalted rice and aggressive eyebrow movements uh, in your host, Thaqib Musa. I'm not sure I have to say this. <laughs> in, I'm supposed to be I'm. No, you're not meant to say oh, that. Oh, right. Though. Okay. Um, so we're, uh, we're obviously trying out our, uh, our intros, different versions, but I'm joined today by my co-host, uh, Asad Hussain. Assalamualaikum. Mm-hmm. And uh, my guest, our guest co-host for the first time, guest host, yeah, Mustafa Dabar. So, episode two was your first episode on the podcast where you were a guest. Very good episode. Have a listen to it. Yeah, it was. Um, And we're joined because I was in it. (laughs) um, We're joined today by uh, Craig Pinkney in studio. This is our first episode with video that we're going to release. So we we decided that you were the right guest to do it because uh, I I think I only have a I only have a face for radio. Um, but, you know, with you, we can bring video on as well. <laughs> um, so Craig is a crinolo- uh, criminologist, 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 yeah. criminologist, <laughs> criminologist, urban youth worker. Um, and I was looking at your CV and I was like, it's some very cool things like gang exit strategies yeah. um, and things like that. You've offered, authored papers on uh, uh, kind of gang culture within Muslim groups, uh, black Muslims, things like that. Uh, so very interesting. And today we hear to talk about all things knife crime, gang crime, that kind of thing, yes. and get a little bit of your expertise on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really appreciate you joining us. Yeah. You're also a lecturer at City University, Birmingham? Yeah, I used to be a lecturer. I literally left a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so I've, um, I've started my own company called Solve, which is the Centre of Youth Violence and Conflict. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Very so did, nice. you, did you lecture in criminology? Or yes, so I lecture sociology? criminology and criminal justice, mm-hmm. uh, youth work, youth work. Um, offender management, um, professional development, um, so anything to do with youth work skills of and course. developing skills of youth work, um, and anyone that was interested in criminology or criminal mm-hmm, justice mm-hmm. or offender management of type course, of, of course. And I also used to run a um, a program called um, Responding to Gangs and Serious Youth Violence, um, which was a um, partnership with a community organisation um, that we we rolled out across the country. Okay, very nice. So I guess I. I wanted to go right back to the start of it. Yes. Um, from how you got involved, because I think your bachelor's was something related to this. Youth work was my uh, okay. first degree. And um, uh, and how did how did you how did you get into or what what inspired you to go down youth work? It was weird. Um, it wasn't one particular reason. It was a number of reasons. So my, I guess my earlier background, um, kind of starts with my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents were well known um, in the early 60s and 70s um, for opening up a community organization from their household, okay. um, which was known as the Nightingale Project. And this was um, in Birmingham? This was in Birmingham. So following, you know, Windrush communities and stuff were coming over to the UK. Uh, my grandparents were pioneers in developing initiatives in the local community for those communities that were living in environments where you can imagine were hostile, quite racist um, and whatnot. So it wasn't many, you know, Caribbean communities, South Asian communities during that time frame. Um, and there was also pioneers around the uh, development of the Muhammad Ali Center. Okay. Um, so you may remember Muhammad Ali came to Birmingham a number of years oh, ago. I didn't know that. And uh, he came to my grandmother's house oh, and wow. had some tea. Oh, so wow. I, you That's know, nice. to hear stuff like that. You get so I have no idea what not. <laughs> but when they talk about this stuff, I guess when you were growing up, you just yeah. Muhammad Ali, it doesn't actually mean anything. I think now I've got older and I've reflected. Well, how have I arrived here? People always say to me, you know, how did you? 
get to what you are now. So I would say that's been part of my DNA. Okay. Um, but I've always kind of, I didn't want to do anything to do with youth work and community work. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, when I first left school, um, I was um, training to be an athlete. So I was training to be a basketball player. And I remember my dad always saying to me, you know, you, you need to have a plan A and plan B. What happens if you don't make it? Um, and whilst I was playing for um, two Birmingham teams at the time, for those that are watching this, you may know the old school Birmingham Bullets as well as Birmingham XR. They were our two main teams mm-hmm. um, for Birmingham. Um, and I played for both. Um, and the coach um, that was um, our coach at that time, he had a, an organisation called TBA, okay. which was the Basketball Alliance. So during um, holiday periods, uh, six weeks holidays, half terms, Easter's, whatever, we would do um, activities for young people in youth and community centres. Um, so I would say that that was kind of the beginning of my youth work, even though I didn't understand it to be youth work at that time. I only did it for money at the time. It was just, you know, I needed some some money um, and that was the thing to be. And then I think years following that, um, I started to develop my ambition of wanting to become a professional basketball player. I had ambitions of going to America um, and playing at college. And then I had an injury. Okay. I ruptured was it your ACL? My, this is your ACL. ACL. <laughs> it's always your ACL. It's always the ACL, ruptured. isn't it? Is this, is this um, 2000s? I, I don't want to, yeah, 2000s? Yeah, so early 2000. I'm, gl- um, I'm glad I didn't say 90s. 2000s, yeah. I had <laughs> the injury. Um, completely took me out of the sport. Of course, yeah. And then it remembered what my dad said. Yeah. You know, I have a plan B. I never had a plan B because I messed about at college. Um, our mindset was as long as we were doing good at basketball, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They kind of didn't really pressure us in terms of yeah. the academic side. That's a very American, American. You, you, your schooling was in the UK, just to get in that the, all in the UK. But that's, that's a very American yeah. way of thinking because you yeah. see all those, all these athletes in America. They get their, their scholarships to go to college yeah. or yes. whatever it is. So mm-hmm. you know, as long as as long as your your football your football's great, your your mm-hmm. your basketball's great, or whatever it is, you're you're mm-hmm. good for that scholarship. Yeah. So unless for, for unless you're in Coach Carter. Yeah. Oh, uh, but that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but it's it's a very American way of thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that. That would have translated. Across, yeah, I, I would say. I would probably argue and say in America, there's more strict ideas about if you're not doing what you're doing in the classroom. Because mm-hmm. you look at the, you know, your LeBron James and all them like have their degrees. Uh, okay. um, I would say more so here. I only can talk for the college that I went to. Of course, they was very happy that we were winning all of these awards, yeah. and as long as we were winning the awards yeah. and we were known to be the best team in the West Midlands, the academic side wasn't yeah, yeah. really what there was pressure us about. So I kind of found myself just kind of flippantly going through college and going through the motions. So when the in, when the injury happened, my dad was like, so what are you going to do now? And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I actually remember that was being probably most of my depressed moment in my teenage yeah. years. Because mm-hmm. now it's like you play basketball from Monday to Friday. Saturday, you're away playing games. Mm-hmm. Sunday's the only day to chill to nothing. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's like, now what do I do now? And then I'm watching my friends now talking about going to America, talking about going to Europe to play for teams. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what am I supposed to do in my life? So you have, it's like having no purpose, no yeah. direction. Is that what, you, what yeah. you'd classify? And as? I thought that, that was kind of the, the kind of, you know, depressive state that mm-hmm. I was in. Mm-hmm. And then um, my dad had a friend, um, family friend, and he worked at a place called the Information Centre. 
to where Birmingham Library is, well, mm-hmm. not yeah. old library. When you used to walk up the steps, there used to be a little information shop mm-hmm. that was yeah. funded by the youth service and connections. Mm-hmm. And they had three youth workers in there. So I used to go in there with my friends and my cousin from time to time. And they always had a reason to be in there. I was just kind of tagging along. And through conversations, you know, you develop relationships and whatnot. And one of them said to me, you know what, you'd be a good youth worker. You've got traits of a of a youth worker with yeah. the things that you're talking about. And I was just like, I'm not really trying to do youth work, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I do the, the thing with sport, with children, young people in schools during um, holiday periods. But so we were talking, we were talking, we were talking. And they were, they were telling me about well, what it means to be a youth worker. And then obviously they told me how much youth workers got paid. And I was like, okay, now we're talking. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll yeah, be a youth worker. Where, yeah, where do yeah, I so, sign? Where do I sign? Wait, wait, sorry, I thought it was the opera. I, th- I yeah. thought, because I was going to go with this, you know, NBA player making millions, youth worker. Yeah. I thought youth workers were not hugely paid? Not now. But okay. the days when see, uh, we ain't got to recession yet. Right, okay. Yeah, we're following uh, okay. the journey now, right? Okay. So these are the days when youth work had right, money. Right, right, okay. And, you know, people were... And were the, so, the, 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 so, the government, so dare I say, yeah, was investing in, in, in those Yeah, so when, that, when there was that investment, mm-hmm. you know, okay. for someone that was quite young and, you know, yeah. starting at a 28 grand job straight at university, sounds good. Yeah, yeah You know, so it sounds really good, yeah, yeah. you know, compared to the salaries that people are making right now. So, interesting enough, they said to me that there was a course... Um, in, a, in the local community that I was supposed to attend. And interestingly, I remember not wanting to go because it was in a post-code area outside of where I grew up. Okay. Mm-hmm. So interesting enough, I never had a problem with no one. I never had a beef with anyone before. Mm-hmm. But the kind of story that I was always told is that you don't go there because that's where the enemy is. Mm-hmm. So as children, you kind of develop this fear it's a tribal, of a people tribal thing as well. that you don't even know that you've never ne- necessarily met before. But anyways... Uh, some convincing, I managed to go to this place and never had any issues. Loved mm-hmm. the course, loved the program, and mm-hmm. it was like, what was next? And then I done another program at another youth centre. And these were a um, few weeks long at a time. Yeah, yeah. So like six weeks or one okay. day a week for like I don't know six to six to eight, you know. And then you get a certificate, introduction to youth work, introduction to working with children and young people, mm-hmm. and kind of started to develop this 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 kind of new passion, mm-hmm. you know, for wanting to work with young people, and then. They would tell me that the things I was doing with the young people while the younger children, when I was doing the sporting, some of those skills were actually quite transferable and actually youth work skills. Okay. So, so I had a, I realized I had a wealth of knowledge going into the session because I was doing youth work. Mm-hmm. I just didn't recognize it to be youth work. Mm-hmm. So um, fast forward, um, as I said, dealing with the injury, all my boys now signed to go to places around the world. They said to me, why don't you think about going to university? Mm-hmm. Um, but what it means now is that your last year of college, you're going to need to pay attention. You're going to need to get a specific type of grade. Is, was this, if you don't mind me asking, like late teens, early 20s? Or yeah, so early, going early 20s. You're into early so, 20s I, so just to kind of go back a little bit, I missed a bat at secondary school. Mm-hmm. So I left school with no GCSEs. Mm-hmm. Well, I had okay. a couple of GCSEs, but not relevant to courses mm-hmm. that I necessarily wanted to do. Of course. So I ended up spending four years in college to get to that point mm-hmm. okay. compared to a lot of my friends that left school, went straight into college. So I was the, always the oldest one yeah, in yeah. the class. Mm-hmm. So I remember being, I used to always get frustrated because the jokes that, even though two years difference, the jokes that they used to make. Like, the language, I even, I even so know now. So I'm in my yeah. mid-twenties now and so, I look at a 21-year-old. And yeah, like, yeah, but, yeah, but you look better old, so. <laughs> Sorry, bro. He doesn't look that old. He doesn't look that old. So yeah, so when I was convinced to potentially do um, my degree in youth work by these brilliant youth workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yasmin, 
Christine or Wesai, if you're watching this, I always got to give oh, you guys a nice. shout, shout out. Shout out, very nice. Um, and they wrote my university application. I know okay. I always say to people, mm-hmm. I've never wrote a university application until I wrote my master's degree one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had that privilege <laughs> of youth workers doing that job for me. Yeah. So we sent off the application. Um, we went to De- Montford University mm-hmm. as well as Derby University. Mm-hmm. Went to Derby University. Um had a meeting conversation with them and I think they enjoyed what I was saying. I showed them, do you remember the purple record of achievement? Yeah, mm. yeah I remember that. So, um, basically in the UK... You don't, because you're old. Yeah, we no, used, no, you're not, not, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm born in the 80s, 90s babies, I don't understand that. So we were all given this purple book, it was like a folder, a nice pretty book and anything that you've achieved... That was kind of like a building of old school CVs. Okay. Yeah, so you show people, listen, this is what the courses I've done. Gives people an idea about things that you've been exposed to. So in my last year of college, which links to the point I'm going to make in a moment, I didn't attend a lot of college Mm -hmm. because I was juggling college and also doing other one-day, half-day courses. Mm -hmm. Because I realized that I I don't have no GCSEs. The grade that I'm going to have because I messed about so much in my first year at college or my other two years, it's not going to give me the grade that I want. So what I thought was building up my skills in other areas. So anytime I go for an interview, I can say, well, I might not necessarily have the grade, but I've got all of these skills and I've done all of this training to put me up to that particular level. So when I went to Derby University, um, showed them my record of achievement. I could see them looking at my grade on the table the record of achievement, I think, okay, well, you've been busy the last 12 months. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've been doing stuff. And anyway, convinced them that I was going to do uh, some brilliant stuff in the course. And they gave me an, um, a conditional offer. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to write an assignment so they could see my writing mm-hmm. ability. So when I made my way back to Birmingham, I realised I lost my record of achievement. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> is that? Oh, my God. <laughs> so then when I had my second interview... Uh, You're like, I swear, I swear I did it. I swear I, I swear, did it. Yeah, so I was on that vibe. I yeah. swear that I did it. Um, but anyway, quite a long story short, DeMontford University also gave me a conditional offer. That's good. And I made my decision that I wanted to go to DeMontford University. Mm-hmm. So Where's DeMontford University? Uh, Leicester. 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 So moved to Leicester. Um, very new world for myself. Um, first year was a bit shaky. Were you living, if you don't mind me asking, you living by yourself? I lived on, ca- in, no, in I lived on campus. Yeah, yeah, I lived on campus. Yeah, I lived in halls. Yeah. So that was a whole new yeah. weird, yeah. Yeah. you know, thing. I didn't know people's on hygiene and yes. simple things of like, this is my butter. This, is, what, my butter. this is my butter. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Was it was it a drinking bottle or another bottle? It was. It was. I was. I seen behaviors that I didn't know existed. And it's mad that you think that you're so in tune with the world, you actually realise that when alcohol and stuff when get into human yeah. beings, what it makes people do. Mm-hmm. So that was a new reality for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that old habits come back of creeping up mm-hmm. um, when you're trying to do something. So I found myself being very much how I used to be in college, coming late. When I only live five minutes up the road, mm-hmm. but I'm waking up at, 25 past 8 to get there for 9 o'clock mm-hmm. and then it's just I, like I, not, I think yeah. that's waking up early yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, um, from my but, uni days these are the things that I was I found myself doing um, and then I also started to come back from to and from Birmingham to, to Leicester mm-hmm. um, and then when I got into my second year I met a man um, Dr. Carlton House and he is now but at the time he was just Carlton House and, and he was one of the lecturers um, on the 
the BA program in youth work. And he challenged me one time and he said, you're a hypocrite. And you can imagine I was. I'm a big lad. I've always been a big lad. And this was a small lad telling me that I'm a hypocrite (laughs) and I I didn't like it. But what he was saying was, what type of youth work are you trying to be? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't be this person that outside of Mm -hmm. being here in this institution that you're trying to be the best person that you can be. But outside of this institution, you're hanging around with these people and you're doing things that you're not supposed to be doing and whatnot. And he made a valid point. And I had to kind of audit my circle. I had to start to audit the people that I was around, the people that I was um, engaging with. So when I got into the second half of my second year, I made it my duty to really understand who, what this man was. Now, he's probably the most articulate black man at the time that I've ever met, because also that's a stereotype, yeah. that when we grow up in our communities and our environments, we're not used to seeing black and Asian males in university teaching mm. at that level. Yeah. You only know that if you've been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. you got to bear in mind the media only depicts us as one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, unless we're playing cricket, we're playing, playing basketball, we're doing football. Mm-hmm. We're not in business. We're not in education. We're mm-hmm. not in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So all of these stereotypes that you see in your environment, you may have one black teacher at school, but you've never seen a professor before. Mm-hmm. And I say this to black and Asian kids before. When, have you ever seen a black professor? Mm-hmm. Have you seen a, a, a female professor before? And you realise that people have never been exposed to these things. So mm-hmm. for me, that was a big thing for me to see a black man in academia. I don't think he talks like me, but he's very articulate. So I became kind of like the teacher's pet. Mm-hmm. And uh, every lunchtime, I was just like, where's this Carlton guy? I want to sit down. And <laughs> I want to understand with him what you're saying, have lunch with him. And people were like, you're weird. You know, you, <laughs> you hang around with this guy and he's a bit older than you. He's yeah. way older than you and stuff. But by I got into the third year, I found like I found my true self. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew that my mission from that particular point was to better understand young people that come from the environments that I lived in, but happened to make the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. So when I finished... Um, my degree and I have to say when I graduated I remember my mum crying mm-hmm. and it was a weird one for me because throughout all my school years I remember my mum crying for the bad things that I've done mm-hmm. and for the first time she cried because I've done something good that was a weird one for me yeah, and it's yeah. weird because you know always because I've come from a household my parents have always been in education mm-hmm. I've got family members that have uh, community activists mm-hmm. talking OBs MBEs in my family I told you my community my family history mm-hmm. so the question is why have you messing about at school mm-hmm. most intelligent and I think most of it is because I felt that no one didn't understand me mm-hmm. I felt that people were so judgmental of me I was always labelled aggressive big was that from within your own so, so, was that from within your own community as well or was it mainly mainly the, within the education system in the education so system. when I was in the education system I realised quite quickly that the people that were in the education system didn't really care for people that looked like me so it was the stereotypical of stereotypical young black thing, man yeah. essentially um, and the confusion between passion and aggression yeah you know, and those words that will articulate, you know, someone saying, oh, you know, you're really big and intimidating. Mm-hmm. But I can't help that I'm big. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, people say things like that and they pull it in a sentence and ignore the fact that that actually means something else mm-hmm. to people that look like me. Um, so when I finished my degree, uh, or say on a run-up to finishing my, my degree, I remember seeing an ad within the Birmingham Mail, well, it was called the, um, the Evening Mail before it became the Birmingham Mail, and I remember seeing an ad for a senior youth worker in a local youth centre in an area called Handsworth. 
So we knew those individuals, we knew their houses, we knew their parents, we knew their brothers and sisters, but we didn't have to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the difference. Yeah. So being exposed to, you know, seeing people get attacked, seeing people getting shot at, seeing people getting stabbed was normal mm-hmm. in the environment, but we didn't need to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For those that wanted to, may have been a series of factors. Mm-hmm. So I lived in my household and I remember in my house, and I think there was about three or four houses in the little cul-de-sac that I lived were the only households that had a mum and dad. So I think about that in future now in terms of my research and think, well, was that variable of having a dad in my household maybe one of the reasons why I didn't? That's very interesting you bring that up because I was having a conversation with Faqib about it just, just, just coming in. And, you know, and it's been in, it's been in the radio a lot with all the stabbings yes. in London mm-hmm. and, and all of that. And then it's, it's always a, a, middle, a middle, middle-aged, middle-class white man talking about it. Oh, they have absentee fathers mm-hmm. and, and, and whatever it is. But it's very interesting that someone from your background as well um, has sort of acknowledged it. Um, yes. Do you think it's, mm-hmm. a, it's genuinely a problem? It's the fact that... So the take I have on it is a lot of people that are getting uh, involved in gangs and all mm-hmm. of this, or maybe um, looking up to Tony down the road, who's yes. part of a gang, is because maybe they don't have that male role model or, or, or whatever it is. Do you think, do you think that is genuinely it's one, a It's one aspect to it, but not the only aspect. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I say that is you've got to look at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily about the role model. Mm-hmm. It's also about the needs that are not being met by those young people in the environment, which is not one. Mm-hmm. And the way that we look at issues, we only look at it as one. So we say the reason why young people are in gangs is because they don't have a positive role model. Yeah, very one-dimensional, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of those individuals have uncles, have yeah. uh, older brothers. So it's not that's not the only reason. But when young people are being socialised in a particular environment, by particular individuals that reflect a wider demographic Mm. and also reflect a wider culture of violence in society. So we can't talk about gangs in the community and ignore films and ignore games Mm -hmm. and multi-billion dollar companies that profit off showing us things like narcos and showing us things like Netflix that talk about gangs and violence. It it glamorises it. And then talk about the one man that's standing on the corner that happens to reflect the wider, deeper society. Because I guess guess the, the... Question with that is that, for example, Top Boy, right, which was uh, which is London based, yes, um, and talks about East London gang violence. Um, it's it's one of those where a lot of people celebrate that because it's got all the leading actors are black people, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that's a little bit rare, especially on a big time show. Yes, um, but on the other side, and so it's something someone that you can relate to, but actually. Pretty much all of them are in negative roles, mm-hmm. um, and they do try to humanize it. A I bit think it's more to do with representing the so-called culture, isn't it? I think there's two. There's a number of elements you can kind of look at. That is, I think the representation element. I think from both director and those of acting, you know, it's big in terms of the mm. community mm-hmm. because how often do we have the the space and the opportunity to do things at such a big scale? That's mm-hmm. one. When we talk about depicting negative roles, I took something completely different. I think that was excellent in a way that they showed the true stories of what happens to people within the inner in city. In that life, yeah. Not all young people wake up one morning and want to be gang members. It's a process. And I think the brilliant things that they showed was things like trauma. They mm-hmm. showed things like fear. They showed things like, you know, how do you detach yourself from living on an estate where everybody kind of has the same type of culture and how do you detach yourself from wanting to just go to school? And I think it was brilliant in terms of capturing that, in terms of that. I mean, if the focus happens to be violence, I think we need to have a reality check. Go to the local community, it's violence. Mm-hmm. Young people are shooting, stabbing, and they're doing all kind of madness. So when sometimes we always hear of, you know, somebody depicting that on a, on a screen, yeah, I understand this idea of, yeah, but it's violent. 
But unfortunately, I've also said as well the the capitalist society that also profit because what they don't want is for you to do a nice story. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. young people it's, it's also what know sells, as well that sells because it's very interesting. Because mo- I forgot the name of the movie. You probably remember it. Uh, the name of the movie, Blue Story. Blue Story. That's yeah, exactly yeah, what yeah. I was going to touch mm-hmm. on. Where I think it happened. Two gangs clashed. was it in Birmingham. I think they clashed. They clashed. Two two gangs clashed in the no, cinema. That's, what, that's what the media said. I, I, I don't know yeah, exactly. That's what again, I heard on the radio. Again, and then they banned it. And then they re- they, they, they and it they had nothing to do with the film. Exactly. It was Ice Age. Yeah, yeah. That people was lining up outside. Yeah, exactly. But this is what I'm saying. That when when these things happen, they use the scapegoat. Exactly. In order to say, oh well, because of the film, mm-hmm. that's the reason why young people are violent. But in reality, those young people had knives and were in that building. Anyway, anyway. I think these movies, like so, the show like Top Boy, for example, and the Blue Story. I'm not seeing Blue Story, but I think they're most they're critiques of the culture in some some extents. Mm-hmm. With Top Boy from the first season, when it got rebooted, and the second season, it became much more of a critique because the yeah. first time was it was celebrating the culture quite a bit. Yes, and then you mm-hmm. start seeing downfall. Yeah, the characters yeah, yeah. start dying. Yes. in the masses. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's not something that you'd say mm. that it's uh, it's kind of glamorizing yeah. the culture. It's no, not, no, of course. Yeah. And I think no, when course. we watch these things, and I think this is the difference between adult and youth, mm-hmm. that we watch these things as adults and we, and we critique negativity, mm-hmm. negativity and think, see, it's glamorizing the culture. Mm-hmm. When in there's actually scenes that I even use in my sessions with young people. Perfect example, the county line thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call it the big illusion mm-hmm. in my work. So young people are shown Rolexes and nice cars and whatever. So if you just explain, if you don't mind, if you just explain. So what county lines, lines are. Is, is, is this kind of new phenomena um, where young people are being basically human trafficked um, up and down the country um, by organised criminals um, in order to sell class A substances. And they're, they're staying there months at a time, aren't they? Yes. So, so they're they you know, you may them, see yeah. someone just literally messaged me. That's what I was messaging before we started. You know, a young boy, young girl goes missing. Two days, nobody don't know where they are. And sometimes, not in all um, situations, those young people are staying in a crack house, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes selling for another dealer that may not be there and making money, mm-hmm. and then they bring that back. Um, and and I think we see, we, uh, we, see, well. we see it in Top Boy. Uh, but that's why I said Top yeah. Boy is good for an education good, perspective. Exactly. Because what it shows is the, the reality of what happens mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. county lines, because what it didn't show when they give the big illusion... They don't talk about the kids that have to go on trains on their own that sometimes never travelled anywhere before. Mm-hmm. They showed how them kids were petrified. Mm-hmm. There was adults that these kids were around. And the, ki- and the kids, I mean, I'm, again, I take it back to Top Boy. The, um, the kid that, well, I think... That was on the train of two that kids the train 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 to, to Manchester. It's because his mum yes. had the problem with and the mental immigration, health. Yes. mental health. Yes. She, she couldn't, she couldn't uh, put food on a table, her benefits were cut, all of that stuff. So naturally it forces... Spo- spoilers, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, uh, he's not watching it yet. I've, I've watched it, I'm okay, just saying. Yeah, not, yeah. Not everyone's but watching. But everyone, everyone, it was that such of a big scene <laughs> yeah. for the UK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone yeah, should have watched it. Now, exactly. If you, if you watched haven't, it. it's... From an fault. educational perspective, yeah. I think it's, it's definitely good. And that's why I'm saying that there's gems that we can use, for me, mm-hmm. that we can show young people this is the reality. You know, because they're given this illusion by people that exploit them that it's easy. You're just going to go to a house, you just hold a bag, you sell a few drugs, you make loads of money, and that's it. Mm-hmm. What I don't tell them about is fear and danger. Mm-hmm. You may be around individuals that are mentally ill. You may be around adults that demand that they want more. They may have individuals that say they don't have enough money for the drugs, but they still want it. You've got other issues around police possibly raiding a property. You've got issues around other gangs and criminals in the local area that may raid the property that you are. So children are being put in these environments, not being told about the bigger story, but just told that you're going to get a Rolex watch at the end of it. And I think this is where these films give us the inkling of what's going on and we actually can learn from these younger guys that are doing these things in order to do that 
I would argue in terms of the critique that we're talking about is phase two would be now that you have the platform, then you introduce some of those aspects of talking about positivity and things that communicate uh, or can be communicated within the local community. But unfortunately, they're competing with a market that says we want violence. So if we can tell it in a story that is one educational, but two also talks about the reality of what really happens with children and young people, I think as the adults, we shouldn't just critique them so much and allow these young brothers to see what they do next. Mm. And if it becomes a pattern of that's all they do, then we can be fair, but we can't just shoot them with the first thing Mm -hmm. that they've done. And I think as adults, that's what we do. And when you look at every facet of society, we do it in school, we do it in education. Mm-hmm. A young person that does something that's a little bit radical and rebellious, ah, oh, you shouldn't be doing that because it's promoting that. And then mm-hmm. young people, we wonder why they say So when you talk about school system, and I think th- you, you touched upon it in your own background, is yes. that you felt kind of that the school system was not for you or it wasn't, it was just labeling you and pushing you aside. And Most schools are institutionally yeah. racist. So what, what do we do in the UK systematically to tackle that and challenge it? I think one of the things is understanding what the system is. You know, before we talk about tackling things, I think that is also a programming that we have within the Western Hemisphere. We want to tackle something, but we don't understand. And if I said, what is racism and how does systemic racism work? Someone's going to be like, I don't know what you're talking so about. What makes you, that make- what makes you think schools are institutions? I mean, look, I understand I'm a white guy. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a male, I'm a white guy. Until they know my name is Mustafa, they treat me like in every other every other white guy out mm-hmm. there. So excuse my ignorance, of, of course, but mm-hmm. um, what 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 what, you know, oh, what makes you say... Excuse my ignorance. What makes you say schools are institutionally racist? Because of the way in which the school um, um, system is created and how it impacts individuals from different types of groups that creates a particular hierarchy mm-hmm. and a deficit of individuals that enter into the educational system and don't see themselves and how they navigate. So I'll give you some clean and perfect examples. Mm-hmm. So when I go into an education system, the vast majority of the people that work in this education system are white and middle class. Mm-hmm. They do not come from my background. Mm-hmm. They drive to work and drive far away from work. Mm-hmm. Whereas so they drive from Solihull into inner Birmingham. When I leave school, I walk home. Exactly. So school and home is not too far. Mm-hmm. So if you've got middle class people that don't understand the culture and the people that are parachuted into these institutions with just a teaching qualification that don't understand the culture and so on and so forth, how are you going to understand me? So if you're shouting at me in terms of authority, and I've been taught in my community that when an elder speaks to me, I look down of shame, and your understanding is that you must look at me when I'm speaking to you. Already there's a conflict. Mm -hmm. Already if you're a woman that works in that particular environment and I'm a big lad and mm-hmm. I'm talking to you mm-hmm. with passion, oh, I'm afraid mm-hmm. because the social context that teaches you that men that are big like me that are somehow are aggressive Definitely. and are sexual predators mm-hmm. and all of these things that we ultimately hear. So we can't ignore the fact that these happens within institutions and then there's also another thing as well in terms of the education itself. So we're talking about science, math. Um, we're talking about um, geography and history. And in all of those particular um, subjects, it's taught from a white Eurocentric perspective. It's all German. Mm-hmm. It's all Italian. Mm-hmm. It's all Greek. Mm-hmm. So if I'm learning about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, I'm sorry, but the ancient Egyptians preceded them 10,000 years prior to them coming. The Greeks were students of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were African civilizations. So if you're telling me about Greeks and Romans and you ain't telling me about Imhotep the Third. Mm-hmm. 
What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And these are the things that oftentimes get projected in the system. We talk about history, Black History Month. Oh, we're going to do Black History Month in October. But you're teaching me about Martin Luther King. You're teaching me about Rosa Parks. Brilliant people in terms of activists, in terms of getting rights. But why are you starting at the at the civil rights movement? Why are we not start, you know, talking about the different empires in Mali, in Songhai, in Western Africa, in Southern Africa, thousands of years and hundreds of years before the civil rights movement, we didn't start in slavery. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching an education that actually is inferior because mm-hmm. what you're teaching me is that you were begging you always started as slaves, or even Muslims. There was doing, no history behind you. Know, you. We start yeah. with Bilal. Mm-hmm. Bilal was the only wasn't the only African companion. But if you don't know about your history in terms of Islam, mm-hmm. and you're only taught that there was only one companion named Bilal, there was hundreds of African. It's just that the Prophet just in that particular time, in terms of the particular narration, just didn't feel the need that he needed to talk about all of them. But there's so many in terms of the literature of individuals that came from different tribes, loads of the Af- uh, Arab tribes. We're African, mm-hmm. but we're only told about Bilal. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing yeah. my point? So the education is given to us that is inferior education. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about King Henry VIII, mm-hmm. and you're talking about all these other brilliant Romans, Greeks and whatnot, you're giving me a history that tells me subconsciously you're that inferior. I was just a slave. Yeah. And yeah. all I was was an individual, or we were individuals mm-hmm. that one day said, we don't like the way that people are treating us, and we sat on the bus. Mm-hmm. And we walked and we held, e- we held each other's hand, but didn't teach us about the philosophy of Malcolm X, mm. didn't teach us the philosophy of Marcus Messiah uh, Garvey. Mm. And that was talking about call to action. No, it's about revolution, you know, holding hands. There needs to be a counter response to that. Mm-hmm. And when you're not given that type of philosophy inside of the education system and you're only get given a white European centric education, mm. you can understand why when I got to year eight and nine, class is boring. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't reflect me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. th- uh, sorry, go on. No, no, I was, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was gonna just say I was trying to move it on to then. You know, you obviously do a lot of research, you do a lot of youth work. So I was gonna start talking about the solutions. What do you think the the way forward is? But I think if you if you still want to just chime in on the points that he was on, then maybe sure? we, we can move later on to the. It's <laughs> <laughs> very fun. We've never, we've never done it like this. You know, we just interrupt each other. Um, I said, and I have no manners, basically. basically uh, but. Yeah. Uh, sorry, what I was going to say was about Muslim history. So you, you you touched upon kind of even Muslims do this. We only talk yes. about Bilal mm-hmm. um, and we ignore eight other African companions, but also uh, big contributions that African scholars had. Um, and even when we start talking even about Africa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Or when we talk about African scholars, we usually talk about, oh, this African scholar was taken as a slave away to mm-hmm. South America. It's like, okay, what was he doing before then? Yes. Um, and what about the generations of people before then in the libraries in Mali and things like that? Um, and I think that would, uh, do you think that would cause, so, you know, we talk about racism in the Muslim community yes. as a big problem. Um, and a lot of people just, you know, kind of throw that back and be like, no, we've got Bilal, problem solved. Mm-hmm. And uh, And do you think the fact that a lot of Asian communities are colonized has, it means that the way we're taught history, as in like South Asians are taught history, is also very Eurocentric. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that that is the, uh, part of the problem. So when we're talking about, just to conclude the point about racism, which attached mm-hmm. to your question, racism is a system. Mm-hmm. It's not just this belief that I don't like you because you're black or you're Asian or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a system. Mm-hmm. And that system is linked to power. 
And when you start to understand racism to be a system and you know how then it functions in all facets of society, whether that be education, entertainment, housing, whether that be um, healthcare, whether that be um, law, politics, then you start to know how it works within the education system. So it's not that people are walking around saying that you're an Asian this or you're a black this or you're black that, but the understanding the policies and the implementation of those policies that also exist within the institution mm-hmm. puts me at a default already. Because if I'm a person that's a kinesthetic learner and Ooh, I learn from this idea, I learn in loads of different types of ways and you teach me and you show me how to learn, but your education system is Eurocentric in it and it's very formal that I stand in front of a classroom in terms of a, a blackboard and I talk and you don't ask no questions, you're leaving people in the room. 100%. So if I'm a person that that's the way that I interact because I'm a and a dynamic person, you've I'm I'm sw- it, I've already switched up. But then if I I'm gonna play devil's advocate here, I always mm-hmm. do that. They know me. Mm-hmm. I put the put forth the most controversial yes. views. You talk about um, we've spoken about Asians, we've spoken about black, young yes. black men, we've spoken about Arabs yes. and whatever. Not. Yes. But what about? So my challenge to you is: is it about race or is it about social class? Because we ha- we've see we see um, disadvantaged young white boys well, yes, or young yeah. white boys okay. or, or mm-hmm. girls yeah. and that's that's a lot for example this yeah. is what the, the the rise in the far right movement now yes. is, is throwing in our faces yes. um mm-hmm. that's why you see you know dare mm-hmm. i say it but, you know what was fueled brexit and what has fueled yeah, yeah. the rise in mm-hmm. this rhetoric is mm-hmm. you've got disadvantaged mm-hmm. um white white men and women who yes. who, who who feel left out from community yes. mm-hmm. so w- will it be too far a stretch to to include them in in in, in this the so, cycle of disadvantage so, that we're talking and I think about that is just to respond back to yeah, your advocate, it. it's a Eurocentric question that you've mm-hmm. just asked me. Of course. Because what you've done is the typical Karl Marx response mm-hmm. of that we have nice. two different um, groups of people. You've got the rich people, the wealthy, the educated, and you've got everybody that's in this one particular place mm-hmm. that is also um, coming from poor socioeconomic mm-hmm. backgrounds, of which there's also black and white mm-hmm. males. And I'm going to say, to some extent, you're right. Mm-hmm. Because just like in the education system, it's not just African-Caribbean children failing in the education system. It's also white working class. Because mm-hmm. they're failing just as bad in the education system. So we can say, well, race and class. Mm-hmm. Is it race or is it class or whatnot? What I would also argue is a concept called black Marxism. Because mm-hmm. what you've given me is a Eurocentric idea and that you haven't said it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about black Marxism. And black Marxism will say, to an extent... Maybe there is two categories within society that say, well, you've got the rich, the the wealthy and educated, and you've got the second class that happen to be um, poor, come from backgrounds. However, if I'm coming from a disadvantaged background and I happen to be a young black male and living next to a white man that is... um, also coming from the same background, we go to the same school, go through the same same experiences. We've both been kicked out of school. We've both not done so well. However, I'm still nine times more, more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. Mm-hmm. I'm still eight times more likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Mm-hmm. I'm still seven times more likely to be given harsher drugs. Me compared to you, mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm still. When we look no, at all of the course. statistics in yeah, the reports yeah, yeah. that demonstrate, well, it is just, it is about race as well. It's mm-hmm. not just about our class. I think, I think so the, yeah, the position that a lot of those individuals take is, well, there's white working class people going through problems, and they are, and they'd be ignorant to say that now because the statistics demonstrate that. However, when we're talking about race, those that are from black and ethnic minority groups are at the bottom of the food chain. Mm-hmm. And we look at that in terms of different types of statistics in representation and also the disparity between individuals from these particular groups in the education system um, when we look at um, 
healthcare, we look at mental health services, criminal justice system, and so on and so forth. I think there is inherent privilege in being white. Not, it doesn't have to be in the school system where you, or economically as well, I think when you walk down the street and the way someone treats you can... No, definitely. Yeah, I, I notice it with Uber drivers. Mm-hmm. Uber, Uber drivers, mm-hmm. like, like I said at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a white, I'm a white guy mm-hmm. just by looking at me until they mm-hmm. found out my name's Mustafa. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't, you know, they treat me like any other t- yes. t- Tom Dick or mm-hmm. Harry on the street. Mm-hmm. And and you you definitely notice that. You definitely un- notice how 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 privileged how how privileged you are. Um, I talk about myself for example. Uh, at work, when when you know, I'm a pharmacist, so I deal with I deal with people on yes. a daily basis. I probably speak to about two three hundred people a day. Mm-hmm. So when someone comes in and I have my a member of staff come out who's, who's a Pakistani man who's brown um, with a beard and the way they speak to him and I'll come out and I'll say the exact same information uh, and they'll take it from me but they, but, but, but they yes. won't take it from him and it's, it's always Jill or Tony or whatever it is. So you do see it so it's definitely... Um, but is it is it a little bit of... So I mean I see that you know, obviously, there's a there's a bit of ghettoization in the UK, which is structural. Um, for example, the the council map of Solihull and Birmingham was redrawn, um, I think, in the 90s, um, which meant that actually uh, some of those seats became safer and uh, safer in, in different parties' hands. Um, and actually, Solihull until recently was almost almost completely white, and even now it tends to be a predominantly white area. Mm-hmm. But you do see in some areas. So, for example, I go hiking sometimes in Worcester. And um, and I'll see, for example, like ninety percent of the people there are are white, and one of them is well, you know, why aren't brown people coming out and doing and kind of seem to assimilating more? Because a lot of people, and again, my experience is more with the Muslim community. So a lot of people tend to they want to be in like a lot of Muslims will live in small Heath because they're like I don't I want to be here. I don't want to be in and like I go yeah, hiking and people are like what, what communities, yeah, hundred percent. And I think that links to the wider context in which I'm talking about when we're talking about the system of racism because mm-hmm. that's how it operates. You have some groups within society that feel isolated, silent, or invisible. So the easiest thing to do in order for me to keep safe is to stay in spaces in which I'm going to have that safety. And it's a basic hum- humans, human are tri- humans, it's a basic human humans are tribal by our own instincts. So I'm going to go where instinct. affinity is. And we also have to be honest as well. In a, in a country that is predominantly white, mm-hmm. the narrative is that we don't, want you to in- we don't want you to be involved in our things anyway. Mm-hmm. So they tell us about assimilation, and I say us, meaning those of um, uh, black and ethnic minority mm-hmm. groups. So they tell us we need to include... But they don't want to include us in their environments anyway. Mm-hmm. So that might help us to understand that. Yeah, you might go somewhere like Solihull. And yes, there's loads of opportunities for different groups. But if I attend that particular group, how am I going to feel? Mm-hmm. I've, you know, moved out of my area and because I've got a nice job and, you know, my children are there. But why is it that when I go places with my family, I feel this energy of you don't belong here? So mm-hmm. I'd rather go back to the ends where all my 100%. family and friends are yeah, and yeah, go yeah. back to Sar Road and chill mm-hmm. with all my people. And you'd be like, yeah, but why would you want to come here? And there's loads of stuff to do over there. It's not the fact that there's not access to the opportunity. It's when I arrive there, how am I going to feel? Mm-hmm. If I don't feel included, and that same feeling is the same feeling that I felt when I was in school. Mm-hmm. So when individuals talk about racism and how racism operates, that's how it operates because there's things called microaggressions mm-hmm. and these things also operate within the system where, again, people are not walking around saying, I don't like you because whatever you are, but that feeling, the way I talk, the way I look, the way that people behave, and all of those particular behaviours are an aspect of this thing that we call 
racism, white supremacy. I think that draws back to the idea of home. So one of the episodes we did on home was that can we really feel at home in the UK when we feel so much aggression from the majority? Um, and that's the idea when you come to Solihull, for example. If you're a minority ethnic person, then you will be met with certain types of aggression or certain types of kind of prejudice and you won't feel safe there. So you can never make that your home. That's why you have communities in the UK that are just fixed there and generations and generations yes. pass and the kids are still there. Definitely. Well, I guess, sorry, go on. No, no. I was so just, uh, yeah. one of the things about that that I was, I was thinking about was I have a lot of friends who have inherited land from their parents and mm-hmm. I think... Because it can't come, it's a they, little. Sorry, bit, they've inherited land here in. in, in yeah, yeah. So like, or or you know, big houses or whatever. So wealth, because a lot of it is actually um, when you look at. Um, I mean, even moving away from Saudi in other cities, for example, in Manchester, like Altrincham or something, um, there tend to be uh, Muslims who are richer move there, and oftentimes it's second or third gen have become dentists and doctors yes. and all of that. Um, and actually, we're limited a little bit because we're an immigrant community that we don't have those we don't have generational wealth in this country a lot of people who came here left everything behind when they came mm-hmm. um and and this happened i mean in post partition india pakistan a lot of pakistanis ended up losing everything because they ran across happened on the other side as well but i'm, I'm just being for my so there's a kind of a a mix of uh, or intersectionality to use the i believe that's the correct term um to to you know the the mix of race and class coming together yes. is that as largely immigrant communities, uh, we tend to be on the poor end of the spectrum, and the um, uh, and the and, and then we get disadvantaged further because you know nine, uh, we're nine times more likely to get this and that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess I guess my my point from that was um, my point from that was how do like how do you see that moving forward, especially when the challenges are further and further, and then I think with the recent Tory government. Is betting getting a lot harder? I think yeah, we mentioned that right at the start yeah, that yeah, yeah. money's gone out of youth work. Mm-hmm. So, that's which is interesting because you mentioned connections at the beginning. Yes, um, I remember connections in my school. I swear. Um, <laughs> we, we used yeah, to, yeah, yeah. We, we had a career advisor, yeah. um, and you know, and we, we'd go in there and you know, well, I think when we were in year eleven or year ten, they'd book you in to yeah. decide what you want for your A levels yeah. or whatever it is. But now, I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't, been, I haven't been into you, a school unless you've, got, unless you've got. So, but I don't, I don't know, see the connection branding. Got teachers and people that are in tune with, you know. Um, some schools are very proactive mm-hmm. in ensuring that young people know what to do next. So, I mean, you know? th- so my argument, I think this sort of naturally brings us on to we've spoken about all the, you know, the doom and gloom and and, mm-hmm. and, um, and what the reality is. So, let's, I mean, how do you see it moving forward? Like, for, especially mm-hmm. for youth, especially for people like us. I mean, for example, the, 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 the black British generation, mm-hmm. they came over in uh, much earlier than the, than the, than the, the Muslim generation. Yes. So mm-hmm. you, you are sort of generation, generations, generations mm-hmm. ahead of us in, in terms of, uh, in terms of everything. So what would you, what would well, you see? When you, when you say us, you're a white guy, so. <laughs> uh, Muslims. I'm, I'm a yeah. British Muslim. I'm a British Muslim. Loads, Muslim. Of, loads of black people that came on Muslim too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what do you see as the way forward? How, how, do, how, how do things improve from here? How can we, for example, in our respective, I think it's the, in our respective organisations, what can the, we do? I think it's the fundamentals of things like economics, mm-hmm. you know, things like politics um, and our and our peoples need to be more aware of those things and need to look at any community that mobilise themselves to a particular point. You realise that, you notice that they're involved in things like business and economics and things like that because they understand wealth also has a has a role to play in terms of the legacy and sustainability and the heartbeat of any community. Mm-hmm. But I want to put something also further as well because you mentioned a point about, well, not just only Muslims, but 
um, Asian communities coming after. Mm-hmm. And this is a critique that oftentimes I speak to my fellow Asian and Arab friends. Mm-hmm. Is one thing that is always discussed, and this is another elephant in the room, is mm-hmm. that a lot of um, racism that may exist in the Pakistani or Muslim community as it relates to African or African-Caribbean people is that this idea about being lazy. Now, we've come here and we was able to start all of our own businesses and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. We were poor. How have you like, been here so far and haven't been able to do anything? But one thing that you haven't analysed, and I say you in a wider sense, is you haven't analysed the destruction that happened to those communities before. We're talking about intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And even Jews can talk about the fact that intergenerational trauma from the Holocaust has had a ripple effect on people up until this day. So you have a people that were destroyed totally, no knowledge of themselves, no name, no language, no culture, no morals, no moral compass of who they are. Yet still, they were colonizing a particular series of islands and they were told, come to the country to build something that is called Great Britain. And then when they got here, many of them were trained and skilled up and in order to work and help build the country, the same country made them live in hostile environments, mm-hmm. didn't give them the same access to certain types of things, bearing in mind that trauma hasn't been dealt with, yet for some reason that they was able to mobilise. You know, we had mm-hmm. things like, pardon, I can't remember what Asian communities call it, so it's like our own banking system. You know, mm-hmm. everybody chips in at yeah, the moment yeah, of the month, yeah. and if there's a wedding or something that happens, our uh, situation is called, uh, 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 called the partner. So okay. we had... Mm-hmm. solutions so then when we got to post industrial revolution uh, industrialization and now companies now we're using technology now the workers the hands we didn't need them no more mm-hmm. we didn't need the skills no more and that's where the white working class get involved as well because mm-hmm. you look in all of the areas where the white working class is when hp source and land rover and all, who's the people that get affected the most the people that have the um, the skills and the tools. It's the what the Tory government are now calling low skilled workers between. Them so and, now, when you look it? at a historical context, you then look at the communities that have come to the country over the last say a hundred years or whatnot, and you look at the differences between those communities. So yes, they may have come under perspective of poverty, and had to start from scratch, but what hasn't been acknowledged is the the destruction of what's happened prior to that. You can't go through over 500 years of slavery, Mm -hmm. being stripped of your knowledge of self and who you are and what you are, get thrown into an environment and just be told that, you know what, you're going to survive and you're going to do really well. And that's not to say that no other community have gone through oppression, but no group in the world can tell me they've gone through westernised, European colonialism. Mm -hmm. Before that, we also don't like to talk about the Arab um, slavery that also happened prior to the Europeans coming and being involved in that. And you've got the same set of people that have that same resilience and all over the ages are still able to be here. And being able to develop and create and build a country in the same environment that still tell us that they don't want us here. And then now what do they say? Because you don't have your papers. You can yeah, do one yeah, and go yeah. back to your country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the legacy of mm-hmm. racism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the legacy that the wealth has been created to benefit one community that gives people that privilege by default. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean to do with economics, but they have a privilege in society on the backs of individuals that help build their empire. Mm-hmm. 
So that's why when we talk about things like OB and MB and there's that discussion, you know, would should black people take an MB and an OB? Me personally, I wouldn't take one because the whole concept of empire is an absolute insult to my great, 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 great grandparents <laughs> because through the bloodshed of that empire is how you're able to be so privileged and say, we've got all of these colleges and you got all of these nice names of Joseph Chamberlain and Matthew Bolton and all of these different people. And a lot of these individuals... Find out what their histories were and how they made their wealth. Yeah. And we don't have these conversations and they were on the back of people that look like me. So then people are then going to tell me that I'm lazy. Yeah, it's like Cecil Rhodes or... Because I know, I, I think... Uh it always strikes me as like Jinnah was up for one and he and he declined it. Um, and Quite that's a few people have declined it. Yeah, so yeah, you know, yeah, hopefully yeah. when you get when yeah. you can decline one, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so. um, that'll be an award by itself. So you're yeah, that'll one. be an award yeah. by itself. We'll, we'll give you our own uh, yeah. version of it. We'll give you the Middle West podcast. Give me the Middle West podcast. Order of the Middle West podcast and my names after um, it. Yeah. And I'm not knocking people that don't take them as well. So those that are watching this, I'm not knocking. I'm just saying for someone that's well read in terms of my history. It's if a personal I was to, choice. If I, was to, if I was to ask my great 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 grandparents what they feel about mm-hmm. that, for me, um, it, it'd be they'll call you a sellout. They'll sell out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think as we're, I've been working on this for some time since you've done gang exit strategy, and we're <laughs> negotiating our exit strategy from this podcast. No, no, nobody no, likes that. Okay. Uh, okay, fair I enough. Get <laughs> I don't get it. I don't, I don't know what you're trying to say, but he's just saying that we're gang members. No, 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 no I'm saying that we're trying to... We're coming to the end of the episode. Okay, How do you yeah, wrap yeah, up, yeah. basically? So basically, my, my wrap-up question was going to be... Yeah. Um, and again, it's a reference to another um, media... Uh, kind of thing, which is yes. Man Like Mobin. Um, they did a they did a new show. They were in Solihull actually. Okay. Uh, they came to the Garden Centre yeah. down here. Um, but one one of the things it talks about in that show is how hard it is for him to get out of um, get out of gang life. And what yes. and it seems that you know he's trying to live on the straight and narrow, yes. if you will. Um, he's trying to pull his family up and kind of that conversation about social mobility. He's trying to move up the ladder and and basically because uh, you know one of the things you said was that. People of people in this day and age, a lot of the time, they they feel like they don't have a choice other than to deal yes. drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of uh, just a, kind of an overview of the of the yes. three C's. Like he worked himself into that, and then he keeps trying to get dragged back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one one of the things that you've worked on in your next brand is gang exit strategy. And yes. what does uh, what does that kind of involve in terms of getting people? out of there and lifting them out. I think ultimately, um, again, I know I sound like very long-winded, but when I talk, I like for people to have an in-depth understanding of what I'm talking about. To understand the concept of a gang, you need to understand the concept of family. So to tell a young person, male or female, that they have to leave a gang is equivalent to telling them, or telling us, you've got a D family and leave them. Mm-hmm. Because that's how in touch and how close they are. Why? Because those families, one according gangs, I'll give it that label, those families meet the needs of everything that they want. Mm. So if I ain't got no money and mum can't afford that money, guess what? The family can provide that. If I'm at home and I'm out and about on the road and my mum and dad can't look after me, guess what? My alternative family are going to be able to provide those safety factors because I don't want to get beat up, I don't want to get robbed. So if I have to hang around with these group of boys in order to protect myself, then I'm going to join my family. I just want to be loved and I just want to belong to something because I've realised that me just being alone, you know, one may put me in situations where people may want to attack me and two, you're not very popular being on your own in this society in a highly social technological era. So me being around individuals enables me to get credibility, respect, you know, people are going to like me, so on and so forth. So when we look at the construct of the family, the family is not the problem. The problem is violence. 
So that's why I go back to the earlier point. We need to understand the DNA of our society, which is violence. So I don't have a problem with gangs. I have a problem with violence. But if we're not looking at the root causes of why violence exists within our society, that's the part of the problem. So we put so much focus on making kids leave gangs. But what we're not looking at is the root cause of the environment that creates gangs to happen in the first place. So if we ain't looking at poverty, if we're not looking at deprivation, if we're not looking at poor education, if we're not talking about racism and systemic racism, if we're not talking about adverse childhood experiences, and we're not talking about the role that religion plays, media, and all of these other aspects in society, gangs will always be here. And I can look at my research and go back to the 18th and 17th century. There's always been gangs. But the issue of violence, though, can we reduce violence? So my work is more about reducing the violence. So if I'm working with a young person, my work solely is about can they remove themselves from the violent behaviours and activities that they may be part of every single day or every now and then. And you'll realise that when you put young people on a path and a journey to remove themselves or deter them away from gang, the violent aspect to it, they may not need the family. Because okay. through those new opportunities, I don't need to chill with you like no more. Mm-hmm. Because you've given me a new opportunity now where I'm playing basketball. Yeah, I'm playing sport. So even though you guys are my family, I can see you like every now and then. But my new family is the basketball team. Mm-hmm. My new family is the cricket club. My new family is the arts club. My new family is the masjid. So when you create an alternative family, I may not need the family that is deviant, that really was supporting me in terms of making my needs. So the key thing is making sure that the needs are met. So when I talk about gangs exit, the exit is what new family can we create and what new family you can attach yourself to that don't replicate the negative aspects of the family that you're coming from. I think that's, a, that's, that's quite a bombshell to end on, you know. Yeah, make the make the message your new family. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really appreciate you coming on. Um, I think your Twitter is at right speaks. That what? what what's, your, what's, your, what's your Twitter <laughs> oh, handle? Oh, my Twitter handle is oh, at real action. At real okay. action. You've just plugged a random guy. Who's that? Then I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've just plugged a random guy. Real action. Yeah. But if you just type my name, Craig Pinkney. In Twitter, mm-hmm. I'll come up anyway, and then you'll see uh, the stuff that I'm doing. Definitely, yeah. and I think that all the all the work you're doing is absolutely fantastic. And it's it's. I mean, I, I just the nature of what I do and the life we lead. We don't actually get to sit yes. with people with yeah. with your knowledge and with, from your from your background and from your expertise. So it's definitely been very very eye opening from from my end. Mm-hmm. And it is definitely. I I've now figured out that maybe I'm a closet Marxist, yeah. and you know, being a Labour supporter, maybe yeah. that that's in my yeah. DNA. But um, that's, that's, well, that's good. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Marxist, it's, it's but I'm than, not. It's just, better than my closet. So it's generally made us look at look at made me personally look at things in a different way. And thank, yeah. thanks for your time. No, thanks for everything you do. Of course, man. Yeah, it was enlightening. Really, really enlightening. And it was. We just taken got taken back to school, didn't we? Essentially, yeah, essentially. Like, we did. Yeah. We did. Um, you can uh, you can email us about the episode or about um, anything else, uh, further guest ideas, um, uh, etc. On uh, podcast at themiddlewest dot co dot uk. Uh, we have a new website that we'll be launching very soon. Themiddlewest dot co dot uk. Um, you can also uh, catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at the Middlewest PC at the Middlewest Podcast. Um, and hopefully, we will catch you in another two weeks with a another episode with another guest. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam.